Hello, I'm Bianca. I'm Paloma. And I'm Tom. And you are listening to the Climate Press. podcast where we aim to bring together climate science with public understanding and action. Today on the show, we're joined by Professor James Ford, Priestley Chair of Climate Adaptation from the University of Leeds, and Professor Petra Schackert, Centenary Professor in Rural Development from the University of Western Australia. And she's uh, at Leeds at the moment because she won the 2019 Pierce Sellers Prize. Um, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, so in some of our previous episodes on the show, we've talked a bit about the human impact of climate change. Um, So, for example, the increase, potential increase in inequalities with 1.5 degrees of warming. And so today we want to learn a little bit more, actually, about how climate change is actually being experienced locally on a local level. Um, And perhaps you could both help us understand a bit more. So maybe starting off with a bit about your research um, and what you're doing with communities, how you're working with communities, and why this is important for improving our understanding of climate change. Well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity. This is (laughs) indeed exciting, and I think you are doing a fabulous job here with your podcast. Um, My work has been predominantly in rural areas, hence my title, Professor in Rural Development and almost exclusively in the context of development. So I have worked in West Africa for 20 years, predominantly Senegal and Ghana, Mm -hmm. but also for a little while in um, the Himalayas, Project on Climate Change Adaptation in Northeast India, Assam Mm -hmm. and Nepal. And only more recently, since I moved to Australia four years ago, um, have I had an opportunity to start working with people, community members in Western Australia, um, largely in um, a rural perspective, but also a rural-urban comparison. So community-level work, definitely place-based adaptation, trying to understand what rural people, mostly farmers, subsistence farmers, men and women, um, do to act against the changes they are observing. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's important to stress that it's often very difficult for people at the community who have not had the privilege to do- go to school, to have access to climate change information, to even understand what the difference is between climate variability and climate change. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have to imagine uh, Senegal, also the northern part of Ghana, It's, by definition, a semi-arid climate, Mm -hmm. and climate uncertainty and variation from year to year, will there be enough rain to plant crops or not, is part of the normal. Mm -hmm. So for people, it's really hard to understand the difference between, well, variability and change. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one example that comes to mind when people observe climate change is, I remember distinctly this one 
little older pharma telling me that in addition to the fact that it is increasingly difficult to now predict when the rainy season starts and when they should sow their crops and if the first rain is good enough or not, he said the most striking example is actually in terms of temperature rise mm -hmm. and it's winter temperature mm -hmm. and it's night temperature. And I hadn't thought about that. He said before, he, he always used to be a smoker, he said before when we smoked at Christmas time, we had to step outside and it was so cold that our hands would shake. Mm -hmm. Now we don't even need a jacket to step mm -hmm. out and smoke, right? Mm -hmm. So people observe. Mm -hmm. And so most of my research has been on what is it that people observe? What is it they do about it and have a lot of strategies and we can come back to that. But more importantly, what is it that we researchers can do to help people who don't have access or knowledge to interpret climate information to anticipate mm -hmm. what the climate could be, how the rainy season could be the following year, over the next 10 years, and how we can collectively engage what we call in um, anticipatory learning. Mm -hmm. How to learn about a future mm -hmm. that we really don't know. How to take on uncertainty and develop a couple of strategies and to ensure that the strategies that people at a community level uh, take on don't just benefit the most powerful and most affluent members of a community. Mm -hmm. So that's roughly what, what my space mm -hmm. has been. I'll let James continue <laughs> and then we can come back to what adaptation may actually mean to us. So I, think, yeah, I think Petra and I have a lot of overlaps in terms of the, the research that we do and you know I'm doing very, very similar work to, to what you're doing in West Africa but in the Arctic. So mm -hmm. much much colder location, like a, a location where you know in the summertime temperatures if you're lucky, get around 10 degrees Celsius in the winter, minus 30, minus 40 is, 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 is quite common. I've been working with mostly with Inuit communities across northern Canada and also in Greenland since the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, and really what the main focus of my work is, you know, what changes are people seeing in, in the environment? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the reasons I work in the Arctic is because it's the region where we're seeing the most strong climate change signal anyway globally. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear talk of 1.5, 2 degrees Celsius. Well, that's already happened in the Arctic over the last 20 years. In some of the communities I work in, we've seen four or five degrees Celsius warming already. Uh, and that's something of a, a, a wide variety of impacts. You know, the story Petra just told, I've heard very, very similar stories in the Arctic around sea ice. So, in one of the communities I work at uh, Iqaluit in, in Nunavut, uh, there, you know, back in you know, 20, 30 years ago, around Halloween, people were able to use their snow machines on the ice to go to cabins. That's no longer possible. The ice doesn't form away till, 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 till Christmas time now. Mm. Um, and so it's changes, it's very, very noticeable, you know, in, especially especially on sea ice, but also more variability, more, mm. more wind, more variable weather conditions, more open water in the summertime, more dynamic ice. Mm. A, lot, a, lot, a lot of work that, that myself and my team does really, really tries to say what makes communities, including individuals and households, either vulnerable to those changes or resilient. How do they experience them in their daily lives? How do they cope with those changes? What techniques do they use? How successful are they? Um, what are some of the the equity implications of those adaptations? Is everyone able to adapt? Mm. What we find is that Inuit are very, very resilient in, in many ways. Uh, and certainly people are adapting to change by altering what they hunt, what they fish, mm -hmm. when they hunt and fish, and how they use the environment. And that comes away as no surprise. I mean, Inuit have lived in the Arctic for thousands of years uh, and lived through past episodes of, 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 of change. What we find when we, when we kind of really focus in, though, is that there's, there's differential vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. 
And so those those individuals who have access to, to financial resources, who have money, you know, they can buy boats with more open water in the summertime. They can travel further distances to access hunting areas by going by detouring areas of danger on the ice. But often those households who don't have access to income, which is the majority really, mm -hmm. um, they can't afford boats. Uh, they can't afford the extra gas that it takes to go out. So we're starting to see some of the differential impacts of climate change. There's also knowledge systems. Mm -hmm. Inuit knowledge is very, very important in adapting to change. Knowledge of how to forecast the weather. Knowledge of how to use the land. Survival skills. Mm -hmm. Knowledge of what to do if you encounter danger. Knowledge which is even more important now in light of climate change. Uh, but we're seeing there was some of those knowledge transmission networks are, are, are being disrupted. Mm -hmm. No longer the younger generations learning this knowledge. Mm -hmm. So the climate's changing. It's becoming more dangerous to engage in the environment. But people don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, and Petra works really speaks this as well. It's not just about climate change, it's about societal and cultural change. Yeah. Acting at the same time, coming together, in many cases, accelerating the impacts that climate change is having, and also differentiating, differentiating those. Right. And one of the reasons that we're seeing this kind of breakdown in noise transfer, it's a long history, it mm -hmm. goes back to you know, the, the sedentarization or the resettlement of Inuit communities in the 1960s. Mm. In many cases, forced by the federal government as part of their, you know, attempts to, to, to colonize the, the, the Arctic. And the legacy of that is still, is still, is still, is still felt today. So, you know, a key part of my work is, is trying to tease out those linkages, those pathways through which climate change plays out locally, right. but also those social and cultural and economic factors which affect how it's experienced and, and responded to. Right. what you're talking about you both mentioned like equity and equality in these resulting strategies um, which I think is what you've been talking about like adap adapting um, and the words that you're using adaptation and prevention of vulnerability and it sounds as though existing inequalities already are now being amplified within these communities and how do you kind of in what ways do your work really focus on that um, and kind of looking at that across communities, mm -hmm. even within communities. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think James is very right. Our focus on inequality and differential vulnerability is at the core of what we do. Um, maybe before responding directly to, to your question, Bianca, let me just clarify how we understand vulnerability mm -hmm. in the context of climate change. Mm -hmm. So the very various definitions of vulnerability and adaptation and adaptive capacity, and sometimes they can be confusing. Um, I, I like to think about vulnerability as one driver of risk mm -hmm. that people experience when it comes to climate change. And the other two drivers are, well, the climate hazard itself, increased temperature, um, excessive rainfall events that result in flooding, drought, heat waves, these are all climate stressors. Mm -hmm. The third one is exposure. Well, if you think about floods and you think about where people live, well, if they live in a floodplain, they're directly exposed to a flood. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability exists often independent of a climate hazard. It's vulnerability 
baked into society. Mm -hmm. It's a propensity and predisposition to be harmed. So if you think about the heat wave that is now just developing over Europe, mm -hmm. well, who are the people who are going to be most vulnerable? Everybody, of course, is exposed to the heat wave. Everybody who is living in Madrid or in Paris right now, they're all there. But those who are most vulnerable are going to be the elderly. Many of them have a predisposition, well, it's their age, medical conditions, the children, but also people, for example, who are homeless, right, who don't have anywhere to go, mm -hmm. who don't have a place that has air conditioning. So vulnerability exists in society and inequalities, entrenched inequalities that are there, independent of the climate hazard and entrenched poverty will make it much more difficult for certain segments of society to act. Mm -hmm. So it's not that people act or do not act out of ignorance, it's because they don't have the means. So understanding vulnerability is really important. Um, one example coming back to my work in um, West Africa that may not seem that obvious on the surface, but nonetheless um, actually further entrenches and perpetuates vulnerability and unequal, unequal possibility, capacity to react, is based on gender differences within a household. For example, in many places in West Africa, there are clear male crops, and these are often the crops that bring income. Right? These are the cash crops. So often in West Africa, it's maize, sometimes it's, it's wheat, sometimes it's millet. So these are the crops that men are responsible for, they're male fields, and the harvest then goes to the market and brings income for the family, and it's the head of the household, often a male, who is responsible for that job and the money. And then there are female crops. These are usually planted on smaller plots, for example, cowpeas. Mm. Now, even though the intention certainly was good, um, it failed and it perpetuated inequality. And the intention is to introduce um, crop insurance for farmers. Well, the science was only good enough for the major crops to calculate potential damage, either due to rain or excessive temperatures, and only the main the males, the male farmers, could actually sign up for crop insurance because it was their crops for which the scientists had produced um, adequate information wow. and they would get compensation for damage to their crops. Sadly, the science didn't find it important enough to develop similar metric for the female crops, the women's crops, cowpeas, mm -hmm. and so the intention to enhance adaptation backfired and benefited the men instead of the women. So this is perpetuating existing vulnerability. And this, of course, hurts us, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we ensure that, A, we understand what are the women's crops, what are the men's crops, ensure that the same information is available to all crops, mm -hmm. and if that is not possible, find other mechanisms, for example, better forecasts that people can use independent of the cropping system. Mm -hmm. right? So that's just a tiny little example, but I think it, it, it shows mm -hmm. how, at a very small scale, differential vulnerability mm -hmm. and inequality exists. So, uh, so re the risk is the same for everyone, but then different factors and um, like exacerbates the threat of a certain climate um, hazard. 
So I, I would slightly reframe that, and the IPCC has a wonderful graphic, we call it the propeller graphic, that shows okay. that. Mm -hmm. So think about three dimensions of risks, or risk. The hazard, exposure, and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So if the hazard, drought, mm -hmm. is the same, and exposure is the same, because everybody lives in that area, but vulnerability is different, then you will have differential risk, Mm -hmm. and you will have unequal or uneven impacts mm -hmm. when, well, everything unfolds. Okay. So differential vulnerability often drives differential risk. And I was also wondering, how do you know about these male and female crops? Is that some issue that they raise or how do they communicate? Is, did they, was the idea from the people from West Africa to show this problem or it was something someone that came from other places mm. that reported that well i think this is precisely why people like james and me um, work at the community level you don't get this information in national reports mm -hmm. on climate change you don't get this information um, in climate models mm -hmm. you don't see it in any kind of statistic potentially available through the governmental climate change portal, mm -hmm. you have to be at the community level. You have to talk, you have to be able to listen to people's stories. And, you know, not always are stories the absolute truth, but we listen to many stories. Mm -hmm. And if we hear the same message over and over again, which we call triangulation in our data set, <laughs> then we feel pretty confident mm -hmm. that what we hear is actually what is happening. But it takes it takes time, it takes effort. Um, it takes also, I would say, a certain level of skill to engage with people who have been, whether through colonialism or other mechanisms of discrimination and disenfranchisement, have been continuously silenced, mm -hmm. who have been continuously told that what they know is irrelevant and backwards and actually in complete opposition to modern science. So a lot of what we do, and James, you can mm -hmm. explain more on that as well, is we build trust. And this is what um, we then call collective learning. We try to learn from each other. So never ever do we walk into a community and present ourselves as the scientists who have the ultimate answer. Mm -hmm. Never ever do we present ourselves to say, look, this is what we know and this is what you ought to do. It is always a conversation. It's mm -hmm. always a debate. We're willing to listen to all kinds of perspectives. And in, you know, in the context I've worked in, very often it is, and that includes work in, in Northeast and India, some, but also West Africa. And I've worked in places in Eastern Africa as well. Very often it is the established elite who will talk first the man who will talk first, the women sit back. Mm -hmm. So we have to develop methodologies, methods, ways to communicate with everybody, to hear everybody's voice, and, and think about strategies, methods, ways of engaging that allow to um, envision futures where those who are already hurt will not hurt, will not be hurt again in the future. So this is what we mean with equity on the ground. So we cannot think about solutions that only benefit the richest and the most powerful. Mm -hmm. That would be um, perpetuating inequality.
Right. Yeah, I think you know, your, your point on trust is really important. This kind of kind of community-based research it really does depend on trust. Uh, there was a paper I think about six year, years ago called I, I spent the first year drinking tea. <laughs> uh, I think by, by Heather Castleman uh, in, in Canada, and, and she talks about how you know it does take a long time of just having tea, coffee, meeting people, hanging out, being in communities to really, to really build trust and to really not just build trust but understand communities, how they operate and, and, and how they work and Without that trust, you know, you're not going to do good ethical research. And so, in, in, in the work that my team has been doing, we, we try and work with just a small number of communities and try and build that trust over long periods of time to really start to, you know, to develop the kind of collaborations that will that will have 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 impact locally. Mm-hmm. Um, also, your point on vulnerability, I think, is also key. You know, there's a famous social scientist, I forget who it was, who said vulnerability doesn't fall from the sky. Jesse Rebo. Jesse Rebo. Yeah. <laughs> we read the same literature. I like Rebo's work. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of social and cultural and economic processes at work, often which have very, very long histories. And research is about trying to trace those various kind of non collaborative factors and how they how they how they how they create vulnerability. Yet the mainstream mainstream research in climate change science still doesn't get it. You look at a lot of you know work on climate change, vulnerability, or how the media presents it, but you always the risk is is related directly to the climatic event. Mm-hmm. We talk about the heat wave in France. Mm-hmm. The main focus is the fact that it's forty five degrees Celsius. When we look at flooding events. We focus on the magnitude of the, of the flood. Mm-hmm. Um, very rarely do we seek to understand those underlying drivers. And if we don't do that, we don't address those. Adaptations in many cases will will fail, and they will perpetuate the kind of the, the, the factors that creative vulnerability in the first place. And think of an example there of of some of the gendered inequalities. Is a, a really good is a really good 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 example of, of of that. There's other examples in the Arctic I could also use of adaptations kind of developed in in a lack of a real understanding of how things work on the ground. So one example would be a lot of people are talking about increasing the use of technology to adapt to climate change using GPS and VHF radios and uh, satellite phones to help build safety for people using Arctic trails. And that, you know, it's, it's important, for sure it's important. But one of the concerns we have is that those technologies allow people to use those trails w- without having a fundamental knowledge of, sa- of say, safety considerations. So the GPS works well until the GPS breaks down mm-hmm. or freezes or you lose it. And then if you don't have those traditional navigation skills, you've got challenges. Or your GPS might take you over some area of thin ice. Mm-hmm. You know? um, unless you know those trail conditions, you might not know what thin ice looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so those technologies adopted in isolation of some of the fundamental characteristics of knowledge mm-hmm. can actually be what we call maladaptive, that you increase, mm-hmm. can actually increase vulnerability in the long term. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, can I build on your example, James, sure. on technology? I think <laughs> yeah. it's really fascinating because a lot of the literature points towards the usefulness of technology in facilitating adaptation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we talk about adaptation, uh, often it just means adjustments to changes. Mm-hmm. It can really be anything from building a seawall or using more drought-resistant crops to early warning systems and social networks. I mean, it's a whole range of things. Mm-hmm. But speaking of te- technology, reminds me of an example. It's not my research, but it's a, another geographer, a female geographer from uh, Nigeria by the name of Idovu Ajibade, mm-hmm. who has worked on floods in Lagos, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And Lagos is a 
multi-million mm -hmm. population city and hugely complex. Expected to grow even more. Sorry? It, it, so the population in, in Nigeria is expected to grow even yeah, more? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's going, it already has exploded, but it's yeah. going to grow even more. And it's, it's, yes, it's really out of control. But Lagos also has flood early warning systems, mm -hmm. right? So it is a technology that is supposed to um, help people understand when a flood is about, is about to come. Uh, Lagos had, and it's well documented, a massive rainfall in July um, a couple of years ago, 2011, and flood early warning was uh, made available. However, it turns out, and this is not about gender, this is about class, right? Okay. It's class differences. Um, certain parts of Lagos are very rich. These are the places uh, the colonial masters occupied early on. Mm -hmm. And these, of course, were the best places in Lagos. Lagos is um, constructed around a lagoon. And people who lived on this particular island, it's called Victoria Island, it's part of the lagoon system before, were simply displaced to other areas. And the more the population grew and the more, even after colonialism, the more affluent populations moved in, the more and more, more and more than the, the not so affluent populations were displaced. And so now they find themselves in the most exposed areas to flooding. And these are the swampy areas, the mangrove areas. So they're hugely exposed. Um, flood early warning starts while people in these particularly vulnerable, well, exposed neighborhoods, I should say, didn't want to leave their houses despite the early warning system. And you would think, what's wrong with them, right? You get a message, you ought to leave. And they said, absolutely not. If they leave their houses, the government will come in with bulldozers and try to evict them because it has happened before. So technology often is not the solution, particularly not when they're entrenched power dynamics, mm -hmm. huge class differences between the richer and the poorer segments of population. And these power battles are played out on an arena that is called flood adaptation. Right? Often it's about trying mm -hmm. to get rid of informal settlements mm -hmm. or informal settlers to get rid of populations that may seem like an eyesore, well, they ought to live somewhere. Mm -hmm. They've been displaced and displaced and displaced. And one, I'm going to share another little anecdote here mm -hmm. from the same study area, is Ajibade not only found that people in the poorer informal settlements lost lives and houses during this flood, whereas the richer people on Victoria Island did not, but it also turns out that they're hugely unequal policies when it comes to health that then further result in unnecessary death. Mm -hmm. So here's the, I think, a really, really sad example and depressing example that, that shows why uneven and anti-poor policies mm -hmm. further exacerbate mm -hmm. vulnerability. And here's the story. So it's this one woman who was pregnant and it was about to give birth just when the flood was announced. And she went to a local health clinic and was told that, uh, yes, she could get medical assistance to deliver the baby, but her husband would have to give um, donate blood for the National Blood Bank. Mm -hmm. Well, her husband and the woman herself were both Muslims mm -hmm. and uh, declined. Husband declined to give blood because that's against his faith. And he was, well, he said, well, I'm happy to pay 
even though they didn't really have a whole lot of money, instead of giving blood, but was told that, nope, that would defeat the purpose of the policy, because if everybody did that, then they wouldn't get the blood samples. Mm -hmm. So they were sent away, and she didn't get the medical health that was required for delivery. Uh, turns out that she had to give birth at home during the flood, and because it's an, a neighborhood and area that doesn't have any municipal help in terms of sanitation and waste, um, a lot of waste and garbage and urine was swept into the house and uh, the baby died. Mm. So this, of course, is sad enough in itself, but where do you think the blood samples go? Who do you think benefits from the blood that the poor, literally, through their embodied blood, donate while it goes to the rich people on Victoria Island for cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. right? So you have a climate hazard, a flood. You have exposure that is already unjust because people were displaced. And then you have health policies that further mm -hmm. exacerbate the lot and mm -hmm. the destiny of people who would need help most. Mm -hmm. And that's hugely unjust. Mm -hmm. That's one of our challenges is when we talk about adaptation with researchers and governments. The paradigm is to think of things like technology, mm -hmm. seawalls, better forecasts, improve for protection, you know, which, which in many cases are, are, are quite important. But what we lack is a focus on the more vulnerability centered adaptations that really seek to go to the core of those factors creating that vulnerability, the disempowerment, the marginalization, based gender, class, and so forth. And, what we see as a result of this is these kind of examples. We see this you know, in the Arctic, we see this in Africa, we see this in Latin America, and there's a big concern that adaptation in many ways can perpetuate some of these unequal power relationships if it's done in, 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 in a bad way. And mm -hmm. you know, we're starting to see some critical refle reflection on this. People like Ben Soberkul and Siri Erickson, yourself, and others are starting to say, you know, adaptation in many cases can actually increase vulnerability. It can mm -hmm. make things a lot, lot worse. Mm -hmm. and that's one of the, a concern that many of us in the social sciences have at the moment, I think. Mm And of course, I mean, we can talk about this forever, but <laughs> maybe the obvious question, and maybe I'm stealing your thunder, is to say, how can we do it better? Yeah. Right? yeah. How can mm -hmm. we prevent mm -hmm. these examples to continue? And I think both James and I work along those lines, maybe in a slightly different way, but my, my effort has been, and this is what I said earlier, to, to, to facilitate anticipatory learning. Right? How can we imagine mm -hmm. trajectories in the future and we call this participatory scenario building. Mm -hmm. How can we think about the future? Not because we can predict it and not because we know we as scientists know exactly how it's going to be, but we want to widen people's horizons and mm -hmm. say, well, if the conditions are A, B, and C, this is what we would do. Here would be our first response strategies. Uh, if the condition is different, well, we would have a different set of strategies. Mm -hmm. And also to to identify very clearly where people's capacities would be, mm -hmm. well, would reach a ceiling. Capacities and for adaptation, you mean? Capacities for adaptation, right? For example, people can 
Here's an example from Assam. Mm. Um, it's an ethnic minority, so it's not about gender, it's not about class, it's about ethnicity. Mm -hmm. The missing people in Assam who originally came from the hills but settled in the floodplains. Um, why did they settle in the floodplains? Well, the most flood-prone area, mm. well, because all other areas were already occupied. But they've developed an incredibly, um, incredibly advanced and sophisticated insight on how to navigate floods. So their houses are on stilts, they have sandbanks, they know how to divert their cattle and other animals when a flood comes. But if the river, in this case it's the Jadal River, um, exceeds its normal flood level, well, there's nothing people can do. Right? Mm -hmm. They really would need a more solid embankment. So we have developed scenarios to understand what could be done if the floods um, got worse. And they will get worse with snowmelt in the Himalayas, it's the eastern Brahmabutra Delta, but also more increased monsoon events. And scenario building is not something you need a computer for. You don't develop scenarios like models. Mm -hmm. We create storylines about the future. And every community has a community artist. So we then make drawings of these storylines. Mm -hmm. And in various settings, we have then acted out these storylines to, to showcase. And sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's sad to, to play what a particular scenario would mean for everybody in the community. And there's an incredible wealth of information in there. And it's sometimes hard to inspire people to think about a future which they believe they don't own. Mm. So often it's, you know, the understanding that it's God or Allah or whoever else mm -hmm. creates the world and is in charge of the weather that owns the future. But this is how, this is why creative methodologies are important. So we help people to think about the future, even though we can't predict it. Mm -hmm. And to deliberate and negotiate who would do what and when mm -hmm. and how and what whatever one person does exacerbates. Um, the destiny of other people. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair at the community level? And I think there's a lot, a lot of hope in these participatory scenario building activities. Mm -hmm. We can overlay them with the best climate information we have mm -hmm. to even further expand people's horizon about what the future could bring, right. but also understanding where people's limits would be reached and then negotiate with emergency managers at the district level at the regional level and say, at what point mm -hmm. would additional help be needed? And at what point are emergency managers and NGOs and whoever works in these um, rural settings, uh, at what point is their help needed? Mm. And how can emergency management um, leaders, how can they guarantee that help will come in most difficult times? So this is Adaptation not as a one-time solution, mm -hmm. saying this is the magic tool and this is what would help in all situations, but it's to understand how diverse the future could be, what could be done locally, who could do what, without exacerbating uh, negative impacts, and at what point and who uh, would provide assistance, I think is fundamental. And this is something we have done, and, and I think there's a lot of hope in that. Mm -hmm.
I'm yeah, sure you have a good example as well. Yeah, that example per se, I mean, uh, but more just to kind of reiterate, I think what really differentiates this kind of approach from the standard approach is we're starting with impacted people or vulnerable people or disempowered first. Mm-hmm. We're not doing our climate modelling, our impact modelling, and then going to communities and saying, what does this mean for you? Right. Which is the main way this kind of research happens. We're just starting with those communities and saying, what's important to your lives today? You know, what factors create your vulnerability to these to these conditions? How might your future look? How do you want, what kind of future do you want to and how are you going to get there? Mm-hmm. And then how does climate change come into that? The key thing is, yeah, you're starting with the people themselves. And I think that's, what, that's what differentiates a lot of what we're talking about out here compared to mainstream uh, approaches. to know about it. is this a priority of local governments or is this a priority for first world countries so is is adaptation uh, in the agenda mm-hmm. of the local governments or well, I, I can talk about I can talk about the Arctic where, yeah. where, where it certainly is mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. in northern Canada where I do most of my, my most of my work and it's because we're seeing such rapid climate change uh, it's it's very very visible and so we're seeing you know communities for a long time have said there's something weird going on here mm-hmm. And now it's quite obvious what's going on, uh, and so we've got a lot of a lot of local and regional governments across northern Canada saying, you know, we need to we need to adapt. These changes are having real impacts today. We need to do something to 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 respond to these changes. And so we're seeing yeah, adaptation plans being developed at the community level. We're seeing territories developing adaptation programs, and we're seeing a lot of leadership actually mm-hmm. coming from the ground up uh, in terms of you know communities themselves saying this is the kind of science we need, you know. So it's like scientists going to communities, communities going to scientists, mm-hmm. saying, you know, this is the problem we're seeing. We need your help in, in these kinds of areas. And, you know, we've seen across Canada, you know, even the federal government putting funds to communities to help them start to prepare for, for climate change impacts. Mm-hmm. It differs depending on where you are. So places like Greenland and Russia are not, not quite as advanced in terms of planning for climate change in these kinds of ways. But in northern Canada, we're, yeah, we're seeing a lot of leadership. And certainly the Inuit themselves have been, been very forceful. They've been very active in the global arena, you know, Situating climate change as an issue of human rights. Um, climate change is, you know, is an additional stress all you're facing in your which is further challenging their ability to practice their their, their, their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen the Inuit been very, very, very active, you know, through the UN climate change conferences, um, you know, advocating, saying, you know, we need help to adapt. This mm-hmm. is a, an issue of human rights, and we also need mitigation. We need mm-hmm. to, you know, meet the 1.5 goal. We need to significantly reduce our emissions globally. And I, you know, I can speak for many African countries here, but I can also make a comment on Australia. So for many of the African countries I've worked in, so that's Senegal, Ghana, but also Tanzania, a little bit South Africa, um, adaptation is absolutely fundamental. It is written into national climate change um, uh, response plans. It is written into the NAPA's mm-hmm. national, yeah. something called NAPA, the National Adaptation Plan for mm-hmm. Action. Mm-hmm. And across Africa, countries have developed their own NAPA's. Mm-hmm. And adaptation for many countries that I work with is not just about technical mm-hmm. solutions. It's also about receiving adaptation money, funds, 
from countries in the global north who are predominantly responsible for the changes we see today. So adaptation is fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where it's a little bit more difficult is, well, what does adaptation actually mean at the district level? Mm-hmm. So for Ghana, for example, I know that every single district um, has a mandate to include climate change adaptation into their five or ten year district level planning. Mm-hmm. For many, it is, however, well, a mystery, really, (laughs) how to do that in the absence of good, detailed uh, regional climate projections. It's hard to really determine what the strategy should be. Mm. And in the absence of good data, um, also often in the absence of a dense meteorological network, Um, district level managers would just fall back to kind of what we already do, right? Building another embankment here, doing more drought resistant crops there. There's probably less understanding about adaptation as something that James and I would would call is probably more important is um, adaptive decision making. How do we make decisions together Mm. to respond to events that we often cannot predict um, for a particular season or for a particular year, but we know these events will increase in frequency and intensity. So how to do this adaptive decision making year by year is much more difficult. And I think, I mean, all, all district level um, agricultural managers, emergency and disaster managers have always had uh, a huge desire to work with us because often it is true that we have access to the best climate information that we can give. Mm. I also know that in Australia, which of course is a very different context when it comes to when it comes to financial resources, adaptation is also uh, absolutely important. Australia has a history, a very devastating history. The millennium drought at the beginning of the 21st century went on for 10 years, coupled with horrific bushfires, but it also has a history of, of very devastating floods, particularly in the eastern part of the country. So adaptation there is paramount as well. But what we observe is that there is often a disconnect between state level or national adaptation plans mm-hmm. that are written based on climate models, that are written in offices that are far away from mm-hmm. where people live and yeah. where people have to deal with the consequences. And we find that these adaptation plans are often out of touch mm-hmm. right. with what people care about, value yeah. in their daily lives, and want to protect. So most of the work I'm doing now in Australia starts with, you know, similar to what you have said as yep. well. What is it that people value mm-hmm. in their daily lives? What is it they would absolutely want to protect Mm. and what is it they would potentially let go of and sacrifice. So to understand value-based adaptation Mm. and how people make trade-offs between the many things they value, I think is is really the the frontier of research and I'm excited to do more about that. I think there's a lot we can learn here from from the Arctic. Um, Mm -hmm. The governments of Nunavut, which is where I do a lot of my work, was way back in 2011, developed its own kind of adaptation plan. It's more of a, st- a strategic document mm-hmm. than a plan per se, um, but it's based on Inuit's cultural values. So instead of starting with the science, they start with the communities themselves and says, mm-hmm. what do you want our adaptation plan to, to, to look like? And communities said, 
It's about Inuit values, Inuit knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that was the starting point. Mm-hmm. And then relevant science was brought into that. Mm-hmm. But again, it's this people-centered approach, which I think is key. And so I think yeah, Northern Canada has actually taken a lot of leadership in, in promoting that at, at the policy level. Mm-hmm. So I think there's yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. learning we can do globally, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of different experiences uh, around, around adaptation mm-hmm. and research. For example, in the Inuit community, if, um, if some families can't afford to to buy new technology or mm. basically to adapt and they have to move to the inner continent or to the inner country how can they how easy is for them as kind of climate refugees to start a new life from zero yeah, we've, not, we've not really seen that in the arctic uh you know there's often been concerned that climate change could increase migration from some of the smaller communities to regional centers uh there is some migration going on from from, from the smaller communities to regional centers but the work that's been done has not been able to detect an, a climate change impact on that. Whether that happens in the future or not, we we, 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 we don't know. Because um, communities have very, very strong support networks. You know, we have very strong kind of cultural support networks in, in, in communities. So communities look after each other. You know, social networks remain very, very strong. So people share, share food. So if I can't afford to go hunting, you know, often what will happen is my family members, my friends, if they have access, they'll share their food, food with me. People mm-hmm. share equipment. Mm-hmm. If I've got a boat, and you haven't, I often will share my boat with the other mm-hmm. person. Sharing of knowledge as well is also very, very important. So these kind of strong community bonds keep people living in those communities. Because if they That's leave, great. if you leave to a more regional center, well, one, there's no road, you've got to fly. It's very, very expensive. So if you're moving, mm-hmm. you're kind of moving for good. And it's going to be hard mm-hmm. to go back to your community. Mm-hmm. And you're moving away from your know, small communities, which have very strong cultural values and bonds, to larger communities, mm-hmm. which still have that, but they're, they're larger communities but communities more formal and so forth so as yet we've not really seen this kind of climate migration really happening in in Arctic communities in in North America there's not been too much work done on this thing say Greenland or or Russia but there has been some work in Alaska and Canada which has not shown any any impact so far so I can provide two examples one quickly from Ghana Um, so often what we see is people moving or migrating but not to a different country but within the same country. To the city or... Exactly, to the city to seek work, for example. So northern Ghana, similar to Senegal, is fairly dry, whereas the southern part is more subhumid, there's more agriculture, cities are more flourishing, you know, possibilities to find work. So what we have seen in the northern part of Ghana is that um, what we call able-bodied people, so, you know, usually younger male and female community members, um, maybe between the age of you know 17 and 50, move to the cities either to seek seasonal work or to seek temporary, uh, uh, permanent work, and then send money home to the communities. Mm-hmm. It's called remittances. But that's within the same country. Uh, what that, of course, means for people who stay behind is not only that they, the elderly, the sick, the disabled, and the children have to face the more... Uh, the more devastating, the longer, the more difficult droughts, they also feel the social degradation and the social erosion of their social networks because mm-hmm. half of the community is now in the city. Right. And in those cases, um, we cannot really talk about climate refugees, right. but, but the impact of migration within a country is then felt mm-hmm. kind of as a double whammy, mm-hmm. both the climate desiccation, the drawing, but also a social desiccation, mm-hmm. the drawing of social networks. And I think this is what's hard for people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
I have this one, I remember this one interviewee who said, you know, it's older men, elderly men, and they try everything they can. So I think, I think you're right. People often are very resilient, resistant, creative mm -hmm. in what they do. But this old man said, you know, it's really hard now because our water has dried up and mm -hmm. our sons and daughters are far away. And yes, they do send money, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, it's hard for us to be here. And he said the most, the most difficult part is, and maybe the most horrific part is that now we, you know, the people in the community, now we have to share the same water source mm -hmm. with our animals. And he says, this makes us no longer human. Mm -hmm. So it's not an impact of you know, mm -hmm. losing your house yeah. in a flood or your material destruction. It's losing your dignity mm -hmm. as a human. And that's really hard. Where I think the issue of, of climate refugees is, is much more acute is in small low-lying island states or island development mm -hmm. states. Mm -hmm. And personally, I don't work in those contexts, and I think you don't no. either, but we have colleagues who do. John Barnett, University of Melbourne, is one example. And he says, you know, it's difficult for people there, and it's difficult for political leaders mm -hmm. on what, what to recommend to their citizens. And he uses the example of uh, Kiribati and Tuvalu. And both are acutely threatened by climate change, sea level rise, storm surges, mm -hmm. intrusion of salt water. So this is not in 100 years from now. It's happening wow. now. Mm -hmm. And and it's difficult for political leaders. The, the president of Kiribati has adopted a policy of migration in dignity, mm -hmm. right? encouraging people to move. Kiribati has bought land in Hawaii so people can resettle. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he thinks it's his responsibility to ensure that people can move before it's too late. And of course, leaving your homeland is never easy. Mm -hmm. It's not only that you give up your, your physical home, but you also give up a lot of your social network, your culture, your language, your identity, all of that. Mm -hmm. But he thinks it's, it's, um, it's his responsibility to ensure that migration can happen in dignity. The president of Tuvalu says, absolutely not. We are not going to move. We're doing everything we can to enhance adaptation, and we will stay where we are because this is our home, and without our home, we're nothing. Yeah. Now, think about, I mean, the two of you, if you had to make a decision as political leaders for your countries, it's a hugely problematic and difficult ethical decision. Mm -hmm. Do you want to encourage your people to move and by doing that, essentially force them to give up their home as they know it? Mm. Or do you want to encourage people to stay and hence take the risk of not being able to continue their livelihoods where they are? And it may then be potentially too late. Mm. So I have enormous respect and admiration for political leaders who very, very, very thoroughly think about their ethical obligation to deal, to make decisions in what we rightly now call climate emergencies. Mm. You've got some examples there from the Arctic too, most from Alaska, where we have communities like Shishmaref and Kivalina. Mm. These are communities that were very, very at risk of climate change and you know, current projections suggest those communities might not be there in 20 years' time. Right. Uh, a number of communities have actually decided that they want to leave. Again, this idea of migration and dignity. Yeah. They, they, they weren't going to let that, that communities to collapse into the sea right. and then had to leave and go anywhere. They've actually identified locations 
these are the communities where they can move to mm -hmm. and maintain their livelihoods, mm -hmm. maintain their culture, maintain their values. The problem is the federal government in the US has not provided funding mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. do this. Moving communities, not cheap. You're talking hundreds mm -hmm. of millions of dollars in, 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 in this case. So while communities decided to leave, they aren't able to. And so it, it's a big challenge. Cause what, do you, what, do you, what do you do? Do you invest in your community, given that it's not going to be there in, in, in 20 years' time and the fact that you, that you want to leave? So while communities here have tried to migrate in dignity, they've been prevented from, from, from doing so in, 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 in many ways. And that uncertainty really plays on, on, on people and obviously has mental health implications uh, as, as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I just happen to know that for Alaska, you know, it's not just about moving from place A to place B. Of course, you know, it's about the ancestors. Yeah. It's about yeah. where they're buried and whether or not where they're buried now well, actually is already affected by erosion or in the case of small island states um, by sea level rise yeah. and all that. So it's not just about the people today. It's about the generational impact mm -hmm. for those who are no longer with us, but whose spirits are still there to, of mm -hmm. course, the future generations of those who are not even yet born mm -hmm. and our responsibility to make decisions to the past and to the future. Mm -hmm. And these are difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. And there is really, I mean, I, I cannot think of one single case where there's a win-win. Mm -hmm. It's always a difficult trade-off. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's even more important to understand that adaptation is not just about finding the perfect mm -hmm. solution. Yeah. Right. It's about deliberation. It's about discussing. It's about negotiating and understanding what trade-offs are absolutely necessary and where 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 there's some wiggle room and mm. what is it that that we ultimately, all of us, will have to let go of. Right. And there's one, and I'm really, really excited about this, we have started a new research stream, if you want, which we call the social science of loss mm. that deals exactly with those mm -hmm. questions, mm -hmm. knowing that adaptation will not be possible for everybody and everywhere. Right. And I think all of us have to start thinking very carefully. What is it that we absolutely need and want in our lives? Mm. And where is it that we, where we can easily make sacrifices? Mm -hmm. And what is it we would defend, you know, until we die? And how individual that is, though, because mm -hmm. even the examples that you're giving, it's like even within communities, within people mm -hmm. who you maybe expect to make similar decisions, mm -hmm. it can be quite variable. Who mm -hmm. wants to stay? Who wants to go? Absolutely. I mean, communities are never homogenous. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> communities are full of individuals and different power groupings and disenfranchised and marginalized. And that's one of you know, the big critiques, I think, of some of the work that social scientists do is sometimes we do treat communities as a homo mm -hmm. homogenous group, homogenous kind of entities, which such they're, they're, they're very often not. heard a bit about how your work in the role of scientists is really kind of taking these stories and these truths from the local level and connecting them with decision makers um, in outside of the communities as well and how does this kind of translate from national to regional levels and perhaps playing out on kind of these more international global scales of like say the intergovernmental panel on climate change sure um 
so both both James and I have had the pleasure, uh, fortune, this fortune to work <laughs> on the intergovernmental panel uh, climate change, the IPCC. It's an incredible experience, and I, I think uh, we definitely need more social scientists and people from the humanities to participate in such massive undertakings. Um, what the IPCC does is to to synthesize available literature. Mm -hmm. So it's not to conduct their own research. It's to go and see what is written and published in the literature and then summarize all that insight and write it up in chapters or summaries for policymakers. And so our job is to, of course, publish the work that we have done in our various community settings and ensure that they are well represented in good journals that then are reviewed in the process of the IPCC. So I have worked on the fifth assessment report uh, and on the special report for 1.5. And already in the fifth assessment report, we were encouraged not only to look at evidence in peer-reviewed publications, the journals, so our mm -hmm. academic outlet, but also in what is called the gray literature. That includes, for example, reports by NGOs, for example, Oxfam or Care International or the Red Cross Climate Center. Mm -hmm. um, not peer-reviewed, but nonetheless, these are organizations that work on the ground with people on adaptation. And certainly, there's a lot of insight that comes out of those reports. So we were, we were, we were clearly encouraged to use such gray literature, um, also literature that is not always in English. So if we had publications that came, for example, out of Latin America and are in Spanish, we were absolutely encouraged to use them as long as we understood, well, sufficient Spanish to understand what the key messages are and translate the abstract into English so it could be accessible. Um, so definitely there is an encouragement to do so. Now, I think where it becomes a little problematic to represent those voices is when community or individual or you know, regional impacts are not that, that people feel and know they feel and have experienced on their bodies with mm -hmm. their lives um, are not necessarily counted in the way evidence is understood within rather narrow IPCC formulations. Mm -hmm. And evidence, for example, in the fifth assessment report on observed impacts were dependent on some, some paragraph or sentence in the publication that clarified whether or not the climate hazard experienced, a flood, a drought, a heat wave, could be, at least to a certain extent, be attributed to climate change. Mm -hmm. It's called attribution. It's a really complicated technical uh, field of, of science, very, very important. But many of the publications, especially those in the gray literature, did not have the necessary attribution statements and hence did not count in the global assessment of observed impacts. Mm -hmm. We still could write about them in our chapter, but in the chapter, the chapter evidence was, well, there's a risk that the chapter evidence in, in the massive synthesis assessment is uh, somehow um, misinterpreted as local anecdotal evidence mm. rather than verifiable science, and that's where it becomes uh, contentious. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I mean, the IPCC, I think, has struggled for quite a long time to bring in alternative ways of understanding the world and understanding change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at the, across the five assessment reports of the IPCC starting in the 1990s and including the more recent special reports, I think some progress has been made. We do have a more social science engagement now than there was, you know, even five, ten years ago. Uh, we're also seeing some engagement of, of the humanities, but it tends to be in a very top-down manner engagement on the terms of the natural sciences and so you know your, your example of, of, of what evidence counts i think is a really you know graphic illustration of that um you know the ipcc is is trying to bring in alternative ways of knowing you know that you know as part of 1.5 assessment which i was involved with you know there were, there were attempts to say you know how can we how can we better integrate indigenous and local knowledge but there's also pushback you know, I was involved in one of the working groups as part of this where you know a number of colleagues on the table were saying indigenous and local knowledge just anecdotal it's not science it doesn't mean anything it's got no value it's got no worth it shouldn't be an IPCC mm -hmm. uh, so those voices are, are, are still there and they're still they're still pushing back we were able to say you know this, this work is documented in decent journals and therefore we're, we were able to get it in but we mm -hmm. shouldn't really have to be doing that mm -hmm. yeah. this knowledge should, should really speak to itself and I think there's a lot of IPCC can learn from, say, other assessments like IPBES, mm -hmm. like a number of national assessments, like in the US and also in Canada, which have actually brought to the table indigenous knowledge holders as part of the actual assessment process mm -hmm. uh, to help integrate different ways of knowing um, from the outset, from actually designing mm -hmm. the structure of, mm -hmm. of, of, of chapters to writing the chapters and deciding what kind of evidence uh, counts. IPCC is, is nowhere near that yet. Uh, but certainly looking ahead to say, you know, the, the seventh assessment or the eighth, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities for the IPCC to really evolve, uh, to, to change how it does things. I mean, whether it will or not, it's hard to say. It's a very conservative organisation. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we are definitely seeing pushback from, from scientists like, like myself, like Petra and others saying, you know, we do need to, to change. We can't mm -hmm. doing we can't keep on doing things the same way that we always do them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that you know, the voice, the momentum is 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 is, is improving. So maybe for AR seven, mm -hmm. <laughs> you your authors yourselves, <laughs> we, we, we might get there. Yeah, I well said. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a great well, pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having us. On the next episode, we'll talk with Stephanie Robinson and James Mackay about sustainable cities and local initiatives to take action against climate change. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes and visit our website, theclimatepress.com. This podcast is available on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Thank you to all the artists who contributed music to this episode. For more information, please see the website. See you soon. And remember, make love, not CO2.